In the 19th century, women battled for equal rights and began to try to enter many professions, including the law. What drove the first women lawyers? The critical issue is, is whether or not they have the personality that makes them ambitious in this tremendously radical and threatening way. I'm the ABA Journal's podcast editor, Lee Rawls, and today I'm speaking with Jill Norgren, author of the new book, Rebels at the Bar, The Fascinating Forgotten Stories of America's First Women Lawyers. So, Jill, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yes. Um, I'm a political scientist with uh, interest in legal history, and I've increasingly been writing uh, legal history. Um, in, nine, in 2007, I published a biography of Belva Lockwood, who in 1879 was the first woman uh, admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court bar, and a year later she uh, made oral argument there. And um, from there, people uh, found out that I was writing about women lawyers, and so I was asked to be part of a, an evening to honor Judge Judith Kay in New York at the city bar. And I did a talk on legendary ladies. They were her colleagues across the United States, women who, like Lockwood, were um, radically ambitious and believed that they should have the equal opportunity to be members of the bar. I'd like to set the stage a little bit for people. You're talking about the 19th century, correct? Absolutely, yes. And you start off the book by talking about the case of Elizabeth Packard. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I use Packard because it uh, exemplifies the tremendous problem of women with respect to lack of rights and specifically the inability to control their lives in the most fundamental way, which is to say their physical uh, freedom. She was involuntarily committed to a mental institution um, because she disagreed with her minister husband on theological grounds. And I thought it was a good way to set the stage for the book to show that the struggle of women for professional rights um, connected in ever so many different ways to physical and civic questions of rights. Uh, and so we start with Packard, um, who was uh, in this institution for several years until one of her sons comes to the age of majority and is able to free her. And even at that point, her husband resists her freedom and um, tries to re-imprison her. Um, the other thing that I think is um, so important about the Packard case is that it shows that the fate of women, as they had different ambitions, whether it was for liberty or professional inclusion, was in the hands of men. And so men decided whether or not Elizabeth Packard would be freed or not, and men decided whether or not women would be their legal apprentices or would get into law schools or would um, be hired in a law firm. So um, this was all the professional women um, trying or women trying to become professional, but all of the decision-making in the hands of men in the first several decades. Basically, all the, the stories of the women, there was usually a, one man who championed their right to do this, whether it was a husband or a father or um, legislators, particular mm -hmm. legislators who believed in women's suffrage, mm -hmm. um, that they, they could not do it on their own relying only on women. 
Yes, I mean this is this is exactly what I was just pointing to. Um, their their fate beyond their own ambitions and intelligence and perhaps the help of their families, um, as they actually wanted to enter the profession, uh, lay with these different uh, men. And some were tremendous allies and mentors, as you said, husbands or uh, sometimes uh, a man involved in the women's reform movement. Um, and they would come in and they would champion uh, whatever it was that the, the woman was uh, attempting to do, whether it was to find entrance to a law school or to the bar or uh, for a legal position. Um, and then there were people on the other side, again, men, um, who opposed the entrance of, of women. And uh, they were very vocal and often um, had tremendous uh, influence. So in New York City, for example, you had one of the trustees of the new uh, Columbia University Law School, George Templeton Strong, who said he would never hear the patter of women's feet um, in his law school. And out in Wisconsin, you had a, a very influential judge, Ryan, who again felt that um, courts were absolutely not the place for women and um, felt that there would be a social revolution if the women were admitted to the bar, and so he opposed it when the question of their admission came before him um, as a judge. There were other professions that women were allowed into before the legal profession. Uh, one of them was, of course, being a teacher. That was mm -hmm. socially acceptable far before the time period we're talking about, although they were mm -hmm. paid you know, half of what, what male teachers were. Exactly. But, um, Professions like medicine, mm -hmm. even religious orders, mm -hmm. were accepted before. Yeah, uh, I mean, particularly medicine, you find Elizabeth Blackwell and a few other women coming into medicine, again, with struggle, um, but a good 10 to 20 years before the first women in law. And um, I think the primary reason for it is, is quite obvious. Um, folks felt that the treatment of women by women physicians made sense. And so um, there was a certain degree of uh, latitude about letting women into the profession for that reason. I think medicine also was slightly less developed as a profession, say in the 1850s, when you begin to get this interest on the part of women in medicine. And so um, since the structure of medicine wasn't so tight, the ability to break in was um, not as difficult, where in comparison you had, um, in some places, a fairly strong establishment of local county bars by that time. And so having in place an organization to either say, you know, yes or no in terms of admission to the bar, uh, women had um, a structure, an established structure that they had to fight. Jill, one of the most interesting women you profile in this book is Clara Fultz, who some credit as the first advocate for public defenders to be established. Can you tell us about her? Uh, you know, Clara Fultz is just astounding. Um, everybody loves her when they read about her, and for uh, for good cause. She uh, is a young woman who at 15 is married. 
She eventually, in not very many years, has five children. She is clearly smart as a whip, and she makes the decision after her husband abandons her to become a lawyer and, with a friend, really sets the state of California on fire in terms of um, insisting that women have the right to join the legal profession. Um, and so both in terms of joining the bar and um, admission to the new state law school, um, she lobbies on these issues and she wins. Um, so here you have this woman who does have the support of her parents but is a single mom with five kids, and she practices law. She's restless, and this is probably a, a little bit of her downfall is that she's not quite able to stay in place for, say, 10 years in the first two decades of her career. And that probably diminishes her ability to set up a really prospering uh, law firm. But she's a terrific uh, litigator, um, like Lockwood and several other of the women I write about. She's not afraid to be in court. She doesn't see court as a boots and spittoon place where women don't belong. Um, and in the course of her law, law career, she increasingly sees the problems of the poor and those who are not uh, represented legally. And so she begins probably in the late 1880s thinking about this idea of free counsel for anyone who's charged with a crime. And by 1893, say, she is presenting really fine analytical papers uh, describing why in our constitutional system um, we should have free counsel and what we have come to call public defender's office. Could we also hear about Belva Lockwood? I know that you wrote another book entirely on her. She's a very complicated woman, so I don't right. know how you can keep it right. down to a short amount of time. Um, Lockwood came from upstate New York. She's uh, from a very poor family. She's widowed um, in her early 20s and has a young daughter. And she fights her way to college against her family's wishes, uh, eventually goes to Washington, D.C., um, is a great networker. I mean, you know, she would really fit in well in our world today because she, she knows how to network and she also knows how to use a soundbite. And she cultivates uh, journalists and, you know, uses them um, in many different ways that aid her career. Uh, so she practices law after fighting her way into the bar. She has a case uh, that would take her to the Supreme Court. She's not a member of the Supreme Court bar, and nobody wants to let her. And so she starts lobbying and eventually, after five years, succeeds in getting Congress to pass really one of the earliest anti-discrimination in employment uh, acts, which says that any qualified woman uh, should be admitted to the federal bar. So there's that aspect of Lockwood, but then, as you said, she's very complicated. And so she also decides, somewhat on a lark, but in, in the main because she feels it's important to make a statement about women's political rights in addition to their professional rights, she runs for the presidency in 1884 and again in 1888. It's a symbolic gesture, but she's very serious about it. Um, she finances her campaign by giving lectures across the country. She's followed by the media 
and she gets a few thousand votes. Um, so, you know, she's very interesting to us. And then she has a third component, which ties into a number of the women in my book, and that is that she has uh, very strong reform um, interests. Her particular reform interest, other than women's uh, political rights, uh, has to do with peace and um, the use of arbitration to solve foreign policy problems. And so she rises in a peace group in the same way that some of these other women um, are involved in their particular activist interests. So some of these women are interested in temperance, some are interested in penal reform, um, some are interested in education of men and women on their legal rights through writing. So it's a very diverse uh, group of women. Were most of the women who became pioneers in, in the legal field, were they, did they come from backgrounds of privilege? They vary. I mean, in the same way that it's really difficult to talk about them as a group of women lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. The outside world saw them as women lawyers, but among themselves, they were really enormously different in how they approached law and where they came from. And so you find a woman like Lockwood is brought up in very straightened circumstances on a, a small patch of farm uh, in an area just east of Buffalo, New York. Um, and then you have some other women who come from more middle-class um, backgrounds. So I think that the, uh, the nature of the family's economic uh, well-being or lack of it is not really the critical issue for these women. Uh, the critical issue is is whether or not they have the personality that makes them ambitious in this tremendously radical and threatening way. I was surprised to find when reading your book uh, that the areas of the country that we consider more progressive uh, today were not necessarily the they don't necessarily line up with um, the areas in which women's rights were first promoted and, and given legal power, like right. you know, the Utah Territory being the first in the nation to let women vote, or right. uh, women being allowed to practice law in Iowa years and years before they were allowed to practice right. in New York. What right. do you think uh, made the Midwest and, and, to some extent, the West a better area for women to make strides like this? Well, you know, we have this sort of cliche uh, about, certainly about the West, we say it was wide open. And I think um, the Midwest, to some degree, in this period right after the Civil War, was also wide open in the sense that social structures were not as clear and set as they were in the East. You know, if we think about the East, you have the, the Dutch and than the British and other groups here from the 17th century on. It's been settled much longer than the Midwest and certainly the West. And so, you know, in, in all the different ways that society structures itself and creates customs and mores and norms, um, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, they've really been set down in the East, whereas, you know, even in Chicago, and certainly in these outlawing areas that you talk about, like Iowa or Michigan, and then further to the, the west where Clara Fault is in California, you've just got things that, you know, I'm not even sure I would say they're in flux. I mean, you know, 
they're like a plant that's just opening up and you're not sure what's going to come out. And so they're just, there are more possibilities. You know, some of the issues of gender roles, while people had their biblical instructions about gender roles and people who had come from the East out to these places certainly brought with them um, things that they were taught. They're, you know, they're suddenly in these new places and they can't necessarily live by these norms that they were taught. They have to be more liberal. Um, they have to be more accepting. Um, in some places, you know, there are fewer women around and so there are more men vying for fewer women. And, and so, you know, I think the women find in that openings, you know, they spent a lot more time in the East kind of looking for those openings and an opening might include what we talked about earlier, which is a mentor or an ally. The, the Midwest and the West, uh, you know, tend, just tends to be friendlier to women. Um, you know, not 100%, but by degrees as they, they try to enter the profession of law. One of the things you also talked about was about how faith influenced uh, these women or influenced the way that they were received by society. Their theological beliefs are translated into various aspects, I think, of their professional uh, work and the ways in which their professional work in many instances overlapped with their activism. So, for example, um, I think that the women who were working on penal reform, that some of them, um, such as Lavinia Goodwill, were, were doing it because they um, believed that it was important for them as individuals to save the souls of, um, of different people. And Lavinia does this by going into the jails and uh, holding literacy classes and Bible classes for young men who've gotten into trouble. Um, so that, that's one expression of the intersection between the secular and, and the spiritual. Uh, a woman that I only mentioned briefly um, and don't, don't have a, a chapter on, but who certainly warrants one, is a woman named Ada Bettenbinner who um, becomes an attorney in Washington for the temperance movement. And so she, you know, she brings together her legal training. She had uh, been in practice with her husband in the Middle West for a number of years and was a very accomplished trial lawyer. And that at a certain point she accepts an offer from the Women's Temperance um, Group to come to Washington and to both lobby for them on matters of legislation and to keep track of what's going on and to, you know, block anything having to do with um, uh, saloons and zoning and the sorts of things that uh, affected what happened with respect to the use of alcohol as well as any legislation that had to do with the sale of alcohol. So she was able to practice law and to um, acquire clients for some of the other women in the book, even though they may have passed the bar, eventually their lives become more devoted to advocacy work and doing lectures and things like that. What were the unique challenges that women faced when they did try to set up law practices and practice law? Great question. Um, you know, no surprises. Most of them found it quite difficult to get clients, um, as they said, 
sometimes a person would walk in because they were just so darned curious to see what a woman lawyer looked like and sounded like that they'd come in and some of the time they'd give them business. And, you know, the business might have been a dollar or two dollars for some basic title search, something like that. Um, And very often they sat around. But as I point out, and one of the reasons that I uh, wrote a little bit about uh, male attorneys in the 19th century was to give people a comparison. Because while it's absolutely true that women never in this period had the opportunity to become judges or to use their law degrees to become legislators, which was very common, or to enter corporate law and railroad law, um, there were many men who also had real, real difficulties starting up a practice and who sat around sometimes for a couple of years. Um, and and so we have to, you know, we have to remember that. I think the dis- difference is that with the men, they either succeed within two or three years in setting up a practice or they leave it. Uh, the men who stay with it are able to build and build and build. They're able to branch out and both be attorneys, but also, say, run for a state legislature or for Congress, um, put themselves up for judgeships, all of these opportunities which these bright, talented women simply didn't have. Society just couldn't couldn't open up that far for them. Um, on the other hand, Belva Lockwood, for example, claims that from the beginning she was able to set up um, a decent practice. She was well-networked. Net- um, her husband had done some veterans' benefit work, and so I think she got some work from um, from that. Um, in some instances, women like Lockwood and two or three others were sent work by the courts um, in which they were paid five, ten, fifteen dollars a case. Um, so you know there's there's really a kind of melange of what of what happens. But you know i I insist on saying bottom line, the best of these women simply could not rise in the same way. Uh, that perhaps even an average male attorney might have have been able to, and that must have been just phenomenally frustrating for them. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about your book. And people can go online uh, to see a link of how to buy your book. Uh, they can also go online and see a photo gallery of pioneering women in the law, some of which we talked about today. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you so much, Jill. Oh, tell us tell us about your um, newest project, really quick. Yes, um, the American Bar Association has uh, backed a project, uh, Trailblazing Women Lawyers of the 2021st Century, and um, the organizers of that project have made the written transcripts available to me, and so perhaps in about three years we'll be talking again. Uh, I'll be doing a book on these trailblazing women born between that in 1923 and, oh, 1950, who've gone on to be some of our most accomplished women lawyers in the United States. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you then. Thank you again, Phil. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.